Okay, so this week I'm going to wrap up my portion of the book of Hebrews, and then next week, you guys ready for next week? Are you already ready for next week this week? Next week, Pastor Reggie will be in this house to wrap up the series. And then in just a few weeks, we have another massive Sunday coming up, Easter. Are you guys ready for Easter? Okay, so now when I ask you in this house if you are ready for Easter, here's what this means. Here's how we prep for Easter. Like when we talk about Christmas, we prep for Christmas by buying gifts, wrapping gifts, like wrapping gifts, figuring all that stuff out. When we're preparing for Easter, here's what we are doing. We are considering the people, the friends, the family around us who are uh, living far from God. They either knew him and have fallen from him, or they just have never known God. And we are considering how we can get them into the house of God so that they can hear the gospel and see a whole bunch of people worshiping Jesus for all that Jesus has done for us. So in the next few weeks, be considering, be praying, who can you get in this house so that they can hear the gospel and be transformed by the power of God. Deal? All right, here we go. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning of verse 18. It says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven." At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Last night when I got home after just a time of prep and prayer here, uh, I sat down to have dinner and Lucy came and sat down and she says, Dad, what are you preaching on tomorrow? And I said, oh, we're going to be in Hebrews 12 and we're going to talk about the gathering of the innumerable angels and being at the throne of God and how there's an assembly of the firstborn. And then there are the spirits of righteous people who've been made perfect. And then the Jesus is the mediator and the blood that speaks of bed. And she's like, Dad, um, you need like a timeline and just like put everything on it because I can't, I can't keep up with that. So here is what happens for those of you that might be new to the house and you've never actually attended Family Worship Center on Time Change Sunday. <laughs> Time Change Sunday is the Sunday that um, slacker Christians, <laughs> they stay home. But the Christians who really love Jesus, they show up. And so we always prepare a meal for the Christians who show up 
on Time Change Sunday, we prepare a meal that just asks us all to really dive in because you sort of know all the stuff that the slacker Christians have forgotten. And so we have to appease them, at least in certain portions, most Sundays. But not this Sunday. This Sunday is just us. All right? But that also means you have to lean in because we don't have a timeline and we talk fast and there's a whole lot of stuff in this text and it's dense. And so you ready for this? All right, let's jump in. So he makes this contrast right out of the gate with Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. He talks about this place where the saints of God, where they came up to it and they would not come on to it, even though he invited them to come on because it was just so terrifying. They couldn't accept the command to come up because what they saw just really made them afraid. And so they stayed afar off. Moses going up said, come on. And they said, no, no, you go on. You receive whatever word God has for us and we'll do it. We'll just stay here. You go up and get the message. So Moses went on up to Mount Sinai. We also see another moment where another prophet. This was Elijah, where he was on top of Mount Sinai, called Mount Horeb in your Bible in certain spots, Sinai and others. It's the same place. It's just called different things at different times, but it's the same mountain. So Elijah was atop Mount Sinai, and he was hiding in a cave. He was hiding from all the things that were going on, and God appeared to him, and God said, hey, you need to come out of your cave, and we need to have a conversation. And the mountain shook, but God wasn't in the shaking, and there was fire, but he wasn't in the fire. But then in the still small voice, he spoke to Elijah on the mountain. And so we have this Mount Sinai that is a depiction of a place that few dared to walk up. Few dared to have communication with God on top of that mountain. But he says, look, that's not the mountain that you've been invited to. You have not been invited to Mount Sinai, but you have been invited to Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion was a completely different place. Mount Zion was first understood when Abraham went to offer his son Isaac, and God interrupted the offering, and he provided for him a ram that was caught there. And in that place, Abraham called Mount Zion, he called it Jehovah Jireh. Why? Because the Lord provided in that place. And then we later see where there was death and plague that was coming upon the nation of Israel, and King David went up to that place in prayer, and in that place... The destroyer was stopped so that he would take the life of no more of the nation. And in that place, David purchased it and he built an altar and he offered to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving for his mercy and his goodness to the nation. And then on that place, it was Solomon who built the temple that was dedicated as the house of God, where the glory of God so filled the temple that they couldn't even stand up to minister in the temple. That happened on Mount Zion. And so the writer is saying, we've been invited not to Mount Sinai, but we have been invited to Mount Zion. But then he shifts our perspective and he forces us to see that it is the place that Mount Zion on the earth is actually reflecting and we have been called to that spiritual Jerusalem. Not that natural Jerusalem on top of any mountain, but rather we have been called to spiritual, to heavenly Jerusalem. And that forces us to bring back in the conversation from week one where we were told we would not gather on that mountain or gather on another mountain, but rather we would be called to gather in spirit. And so when we gather in spirit, we gather into a place wherever we are that is in reflection of the heavens. We gather in reflection of what is going on where God actually dwells, the city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem. But we have to understand that it is based on an invitation to come. He said, you have come not to this mountain, but you've gathered at that mountain. And so we have gathered together. We come together where? To Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. And we see this prophecy even in the Old Covenant. And there's going to begin in this conversation a shift from what was the Old Covenant and what is better in the New Covenant. And so there's this prophecy in the Old Covenant speaking to moments in the New Covenant and then an even greater moment beyond after Jesus has returned and shaken all things. And in Isaiah 51.11, it says it like this. The redeemed of the Lord 
shall return and come to Zion with singing. And everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. So how is it that we are told to gather to Mount Zion? How do we come? We come in with singing. Why are we told to come in with singing? Because when we come into the gathering, the presence of God with singing, we step into that place called spirit. And my only description of this place that seems to make sense, but it gets a little Hollywood, is it's almost like you, you step into that portal where heaven and, and earth, there's no separation. It's, it's like the ceiling opened up. And we're worshiping on the earth, but in that moment, God in heaven on his throne, suddenly the earth has become his footstool. Where we step into the spirit by worship and heaven is open to us. And in that place, every good gift and every perfect gift comes down. In that place, we understand and see God for who he is. But it's an intentional place. It's not a place that just happens. Rather, it's a place that by gathering, by making movement forward, we are demonstrating that I am coming to that place where God dwells. We demonstrate with singing that through worship, we are expecting heaven and earth to become one. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in that place, he said that there is joy that comes upon the heads of the worshiper. In that place, we obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing flee away. Now here's where I want to just sit for a second. Because there is a lot of sorrow and sighing in the world. Um, tension, people's levels of, I mean, we're just more anxious than we've ever been. We're, we're angry, like, all the time. And so you can just walk in culture. You can walk in public. You can drive on the roads. You can have conversations you can read the stories and watch the news and, and things are just, they're spiraling. Things are getting out of control. And when we spend all of our time in the world, there is this tension in the world that comes upon us. Why? Because we're spending all of our time in the world. So what's in the world comes upon us. It's a, it's a spiritual battle that we become aware of. Now, I know it's not called that, we blame a lot of things that we deal with in our, in our minds and our frustrations. We blame it on all kinds of things. We blame it on social media. We blame it on economics. But there is a truth here that as the coming of the Lord draws near, the flesh knows that its days are short and it is not prepared and the spirit within you is against the flesh and there is this arguing and there is this conflict because the spirit knows you need to be ready but you're not ready and you're feeling the tension of not being ready and we're blaming it on everything else but the truth is we're just spending all the time in the world and the frustrations of the world are coming upon us. Now, he says in those times we return, we come back. Where do we come to? To Zion. How do we come to Zion? With singing. Why? Because through worship, we step into that place where the joy of God, the gladness of God comes upon us. The sorrow, the sighing of the world comes upon us out here. But when we step in, there is the replacement of the goodness of God upon us. So we trade our sorrows for joy. But when does that happen? Where is the exchange? Is it just for showing up? Or is it when we show up with singing? 
It's when we show up with singing. Why? Because the Father said that he's seeking a people who will worship him. Jesus said it won't be on that mountain, it won't be on that mountain, but rather true worshipers will give the Father what the Father desires by worshiping him in spirit and in truth. So in spirit, we then find ourselves gathered together where heaven and earth open up and we experience the fullness that God has for us. So in that moment, we trade the sorrow. What is sorrow? Sorrow is when you have a grieving or a frustration or a hurt that's actually based on something. You lost someone. Something bad happened. Someone said something to you. You're upset about it. There's a reason for the sorrow. But he says there's also sighing. Now what is sighing? It's when you have that that grief, that feeling of grief, but you have no idea why. You're you're just agitated. You're just hurting. You're just upset. Somebody says, why are you? I don't know why. If I knew, I'd fix it, right? Like you you don't have an answer. You just know that you don't feel right. When you step into his presence with singing, the sorrow, the things you know about, and the sighing flee away. So the burden is released and the joy comes. But it's attached to our worship. This is why the backside of our text today says, therefore what? Therefore we worship God with reverence and with awe. Why? Because we've invited to come into Mount Zion. When you're invited to come into Mount Zion, you come into Mount Zion with singing. Like I know know some people, especially in a morning like this, I mean, it was just work to get here. Like the alarm went off and you're like, there is no way. It's already time to wake up. There are some mornings, some people that just, they can't, they can't get out of bed. They just can't. And then they force themselves to get out of bed. That's a win. Like, great. You got up. For some, it was harder than others. That's, that's good. Then you, you got dressed. Good. You made the decision to come on in. Great. You just played for three quarters. You woke up, you made the decision to come in, you got dressed. Three quarters. Like, you're here in the room, but you've only played three quarters. Yes, it's a football reference. I'm sorry, I can't help it. I mean, we could, we could go basketball, right? It's March Madness. We'll go for three periods. You've made it three periods. There are four. What is, where's the win? Oh, the win is not just when you get up, not just when you get ready, not just when you show up. The win is when you worship the Lord with singing. Because you can come in without singing. You come in with sorrow. You come in with sighing. If you don't worship, there is nothing that causes the sorrow and the sighing to fall so that your hands are free to receive joy and receive gladness. And it's possible when you come into the house but you don't bring your worship that you will leave with everything that you came in with. But when you come in to Zion with singing, In that moment, what happens? The sorrow and the sighing flee away and the joy and the gladness come. I I don't make apologies. People are like, Sean, man, I mean, you make it sound like all you got to do is come into church, lift your hands, worship God, and everything's just better. That's because I believe if you just show up, come into his presence, lift your hand and sit, it will be better. If I sound like that, good, because that's what I believe. What I get tired of are the people who come in, put their hands in their pockets, do nothing, walk out and say, well, that did nothing for me. Of course it did nothing for you. Go walk in. You could have money in the bank. Walk in the bank, sit in the chair, look around, get up and walk out and say, I don't have anything for me because you didn't do anything. Go walk into the weight room, sit down on the bench, watch everybody work out, get up, walk out. It did nothing for me. Of course not. You don't just come in. You come in with singing. You worship him. Hebrews 4.16 says, let us draw near. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help. 
in time of need. How do we draw near? Through worship. That's, that is the gospel definition of drawing near. I don't just show up, I show up and sing. It's called worship, it's called coming to Mount Zion, it's where I receive mercy and where I find help. Now, that might be a good idea to go ahead and like define exactly what that means, because sometimes in the Christian world, we just we use those words like synonymously, but they're not the same word. Mercy is mercy, grace is grace. Have you ever done something stupid and somebody's like, oh, it's fine, don't worry about it. You're like, oh, thank God for grace. That's not at all what that word means. You should say, thank God for mercy. Why? Because you deserve to be punched in the face, but they didn't punch you in the face. You deserved punishment. You deserved judgment, but judgment, punishment was withheld. What does that mean? I received mercy. I did not get what I did deserve. That's mercy. I, I, I receive mercy, but I find grace. This is an active looking. It is an active drawing near. It is an active lifting my hands. It is an active raising of my voice. I was allowed to come in because I received mercy that let me in the door. Like they couldn't come onto the mountain. If they had not prepared themselves, if they touched the mountain, they died. He said, you're not being called to that kind of a mountain. You're called to Mount Zion, the heavenly city of God. So you receive mercy, you're led on the mountain. Good. But I need to find grace. Like I need something. I, I need help. I need freedom. I need healing. I need comfort. I need something from God. He says that you have to find. You find it by participating in the remedy that the gospel commands for things like sorrow and sighing, which is worship. So through worship, I find grace. Grace doesn't just happen. I find it. Noah found favor. David found favor. God offered it all by himself, which makes it unearned and undeserved. There it is. It's there. But you still have to find it. Finding it is what we call faith. By grace are we saved through faith. So I draw near where I receive mercy and I find grace. So that is this invitation to the city of God, to the reflection on the earth of what is actually going on in heaven. And then he gives us this full description of what is happening in heaven. And here are just a few absolutes that I think are important because at the end of this text, he talks about what can be shaken is shaken, what can't be shaken will remain. I don't know how your Christian walk is, but in my Christian walk, I have a tendency to, um, I'll kind of grab onto certain ideas and I think, oh, this is cool, that sounds great, and then I try it for a while and maybe it doesn't work out and then I get frustrated and then I have to go back to the foundation. I might be the only one in the room that ever does that. Um, these are foundational things that he's going to list. And these are things that have to be like, our perspective has to be shaped by what cannot be shaken. And so he's, rather than talking about all the things that we might want, he's going to talk about the things that are foundational. So we're invited to Mount Zion, and at Mount Zion, he says, here's what else is going on there. There is an innumerable amount of angels. Well, he's talking about what is there in the heavens. He's forcing us to look up where our help comes from. He's wanting us to see what is going on around the throne of God. And so we now have this picture of innumerable angels, which is exactly what John saw in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 11. He said, then I looked and I heard the sound around the throne of God and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice. I like the word loud there. Because on the earth, 
we are a reflection of the innumerable angels. Their worship is a loud voice. Therefore, it's okay for our worship to be a loud voice. So he says, sang with a loud voice. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and honor and blessing. It's the sound of heaven. The sound of heaven is worthy is the lamb that was slain. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and honor and blessing. What is the sound on the earth that is a reflection of the sound of heaven? Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and blessing and honor and glory. It's the sound. And they sing it over and over and over. And so the sound of earth is over and over and over that matches the sound of heaven. We have been gathered together with innumerable angels. And then he goes on, and who has been gathered? He says, oh, that's the assembly of the firstborn from the dead who are enrolled in heaven. Now, there are two ways to see this. You can see this as the assembly of the firstborn from the dead who are rolled in heaven as the same as a few groups later when we see the spirits of the righteous who have been made perfect. You can see those as the same, or you can kind of dig a little deeper and through the language understand that this are, these though are the same group in one way, they're, they're separate. Who are the ones who are assembled as the firstborn from the dead who are enrolled in heaven. It didn't say they're in heaven. It said they're enrolled. And it also says that it is the assembly. Now, we dig a little deeper into that, and we see that that word for assembly is ecclesia, which is our word for church. So it's the church of the firstborn from the dead. Now, how's that for a name? Church of the firstborn from the dead. We might rebrand. <laughs> who are enrolled in heaven. Let's walk through this. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18 says that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might be preeminent. So Jesus is the head of of the firstborn from the dead, the first of the firstborn from the dead. That's not saying that he was like us in that he was a person who just died and earned a position, but rather he came down to give his life to bring us up. So through his sacrifice, he being the firstborn or the one who made the sacrifice, we are called into that um, inheritance. Now, that's a, that's a big deal, because what is our inheritance? Oh, it's that we're enrolled in heaven. This should give us peace on the earth. Luke chapter 10 and verse 20, the church had gathered around Jesus, and they're like, hey, this was awesome. I was like laying hands on people, and they're getting sick. I was casting out devils, and you wouldn't believe this, Jesus. Like, the devils came right out of a guy, and he says, yeah, that's cool. But rejoice that your name is written in heaven. I have a tendency to fix my focus on things that um, are temporal and get all excited about all the things that God is doing, like, thank you, Jesus, for a new car. It's going to rust and fall apart. Thank you, Jesus, for my new house. Yeah, it's going to get old and collapse. Thank you, Jesus, for my new shirt. It's going to be out of style in three days. <laughs> but I get all excited about those things. Jesus, you healed their body. Yep, and in 27 years, they're going to die anyhow. Okay, that was too far. But you get the point. We get, we get all excited about all this stuff. And he says, look, rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Your everlasting joy isn't these things. The everlasting joy is that your name is written in heaven. 
Like that's a big deal that you're enrolled in heaven. So this is a gathering, not just of people, but it is a gathering of people whose names are written in heaven. It is a gathering of people who are enrolled. See, I can walk around the earth with full confidence that if I walk out of that door and get hit by a bus, I'm going to wake up in the presence of Jesus. See, I don't, I don't walk around with a fear. I don't walk around with an anxiety of what might happen because what I know will happen is one day I'm going to be in the presence of Jesus. So there is a joy that is overwhelming. There is a peace that will not fail. Why? Because my name is written in heaven. That is where my joy comes from. So when I step into the presence of God where heaven and earth are opened and I see Zion and I see the angels and I look around and it's all the people who are like me, I have joy and peace because I know what's on the other side. There's something else here we need to just sort of tag on this, this word firstborn. Um, we talked about this two weeks ago, but it becomes very relevant right here. Remember how the firstborn, they had a, a double portion that was promised to them? So of all that their family had, the firstborn received a double portion. So if there were two children, then the stuff was divided by three, and the firstborn received two portions, and the secondborn received one portion. If there were six children, everything was divided by seven. The firstborn received two portions. Everyone else received a single portion. The, the church is an assembly of firstborns. We all get the double portion. Every single one of us. Romans chapter 8 and verse 16 says it like this, that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified with Him. Him. And so as an heir of all that is Jesus, I receive the glorification of my body so that one day, though I am here, I will be in glory there. So I'm enrolled in heaven and I receive the double portion. I receive all that has been given to him. He gives to me. He gives me what has been given to him. Why? Because there's no lack in the kingdom of God. Because there's no insufficiency in the kingdom of God. There is abundance so that all Every single one of this assembly, it's an assembly of the firstborn. We all get a double portion. So when I come into his presence and I see all of you, it reminds me when I see how awesome you are. Oh, wait a minute. I'm a firstborn too. You, you know how sometimes we'll see people that are just so much more important than us. It actually makes us feel worse. Oh, don't look at me like that. Okay. Okay. You're a dad. Some other dad gets his kids a cooler car than you got your kids. That doesn't bother you? You don't think about that? You see somebody show up with a diamond ring that's massive and you remember the one you got your wife that she said yes to? So when I walk into God's house and I look around and I see all these firstborns, ha <laughs> ha. It's just a reminder that we're all firstborns and that all that Jesus has, he has given to all of us because he's no respecter of persons. So in that knowledge, there is a joy that floods my soul that is based on a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So my joy is not based on this kingdom that can and will be shaken. My joy is based on his kingdom that cannot be shaken. He keeps right on going. He says, and we're not just gathered together with all the firstborns. We're not just gathered together with the innumerable angels. We're not just gathered together in that way. But we're also gathered together under the throne of God. The God who's the judge of all. When God introduced himself to Moses because his people had been forgotten and they were forgetting him. 
God said to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. That is the God whom we serve, God who so loved us that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in Jesus will receive through faith the grace that God has offered. That is the God that we serve, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. It's not the God of the Muslims. It's not the God of the Mormons, not the God of the Scientologists. It's the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I am the God who's the judge of all. I'm the king of kings. I'm the Lord of lords. I'm the God of gods. He is the one. And when we gather together, we're in his presence not someone else's presence. And that's a pretty big deal. And then he moves on. He keeps the conversation going. He says, and, so you've gathered with, gathered with the angels, you've gathered with, gathered with the church, you've gathered at the throne of God, you have also gathered with the spirits of the righteous who have been made perfect. Been made, already been made perfect. Here's what this means. Remember when the apostle Paul was having a conversation, and he said, who will deliver me from this body of death? In death, we are delivered from this body. We find ourselves then in perfection because we now see he who is perfect. In 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul is having a conversation with the church. In the middle of a conversation about spiritual gifts and spiritual gifts, there is this conversation about love and spiritual gifts. And in the middle of that conversation, he says, look, right now on the earth, we will prophesy in part, we will know in part. There is this veil called the flesh that causes us to do not everything that we want to do. Like, we can, we can see God, we can experience God, we can feel God, but it's going to be different there. But right now, it's okay that we have a measure of something, but just know this isn't perfection. It's why we don't just lose our heads when we get it wrong. John said, my little children sin not, but when you do, you have an advocate with the Father. We have not stood face to face with that which is perfect yet. So in this place, there we, are, we, we, we have imperfections. In, in this place, meaning on the earth, we, we know in part, we know partially. But he said, the day comes when you're standing in front of the perfect one, which is in front of Jesus, where now all of a sudden, as you are known, so as God knows you, now you know. Now all of a sudden there is perfection because you're in the presence of who is perfect. So when we're talking about the spirits of the righteous who have been made perfect, we are talking about those who have died before us who are right now in the presence of Jesus. And that gives us comfort. That is a comforting idea to know that the saints who have preceded us are in the reward that we one day will find. It's comforting to us to know that when we've lost family or we've lost friends who loved Jesus, to know that right now, today, they are in the presence of God. It's comforting to us. Let's kind of work on our eschatology real quick. First Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 16 says that the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with him. So here's how this looks. There are those who have died before us. What are they? They are the spirits of the righteous who've been made perfect. They're already there. The dead in Christ are there, but it's confusing because it says they rise first. What does that mean? Oh, it's the glorification of their body. There is a moment when Jesus returns and we are caught up. What is mortal, which is our body, we put on immortality. That means our body, we're given our new, our heavenly body. That heavenly body, that transaction happens at the same time who's, as those whose spirits right now are in heaven, but absent that glorified body. There's a moment that glorified body for them rises first. They find that where we then are called up and meet them in the air. Your, your loved ones who loved Jesus who are dead are not in the ground. Their body was buried, but their spirit is in the presence of Jesus. Why? That's how they've been made perfect. Then we, who are alive and are left, we are caught up. That word there in the Latin is rapturo. I know there are people like, rapture is not in the Bible. It's just not in your English Bible. If you read Latin, it's in that Bible. So we are caught up together with who? With them. 
So we then caught up together with them will be with Jesus in the air forever. But right now, there's just something sort of amazing to think that on the earth, on the Sabbath, on the Lord's Day, there are 2.6 billion people worshiping Jesus on the earth and innumerable saints before us and innumerable angels in heaven and we're all singing the same song. We're all gathered at the same throne. There is a connection spiritually to all that is in God and around God that we experience on the Lord's Day, on the Sabbath, and it brings us rest. It brings us hope. So I sorrow, not like the world who sorrows, but I might miss someone who is in heaven, but there is a comfort in me because I know that they're in the presence of God. So I don't sorrow as one who has no hope, but I just miss them, but I have hope in knowing that one day we all will be together where we meet the Lord in the air. There is a joy in that. There is a comfort in that. And then he goes on to the part that for me is like massive in this text. And you have come to the mediator of the new covenant, to Jesus Christ. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. In Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6, it says, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old since he has obtained as the mediator of the new covenant that is enacted on better promises. So Jesus came and mediated a covenant that is better. He mediated a covenant for us that is better than the old covenant. Now, let's, let's look at this in contrast Sinai again. Okay, remember from way back when we started 40 minutes ago. Two people on Mount Sinai. Moses and Elijah. Remember? Those are the two. Okay, we've not come to that mountain. We've come to Mount Zion. Jesus brought his disciples, Peter, James, and John, his three favorites, and he brought them onto a very high mountain. When he brought them onto that very high mountain, Jesus was transfigured. What that means is he became like almost electric. He was bright, he was shining, he was terrifying to the ones who were looking. He stepped into his glory. There was a moment we see, um, we see Paul write about this, the Philippians, that Jesus emptied himself. He didn't empty himself of being God. He emptied himself of the glory of God so he could become flesh. Sometimes people say he emptied himself of his divinity. God can't not be God. I don't mean to say that that's stupid. It's just stupid. (laughs) God didn't not be God. And this is why sometimes when we piece together, especially in spirit-filled circles, we piece together these theologies that are like, we're just like Jesus. No, you're not. You're not God. You aren't God who became flesh. Like, he is God who became flesh. That's different than us. He became flesh so he could show us how to do life and spend eternity with him. But make no mistake, you, you aren't like Jesus. Okay. Um, so it's just important to sometimes know why and what we, we think. But what he did do in that moment on the mountain, he reclaimed in a moment he was seeing in glory. So he, what he emptied himself of, he's now seen with. And it was terrifying to the disciples. But on the mountain, who appeared to him? Moses and Elijah. The two people who had communication with God on Mount Sinai. Now, Moses is there and Elijah is there. And then God speaks to the disciples. And he says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He suddenly uses the language of the prophets from Isaiah when it says that there will be one, my chosen one, 
in whom my soul delights. That's old covenant language for what was going on in the new covenant. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So God quotes the prophets to open their eyes to. This is the one that the prophets prophesied about. But then he also says, listen to him. And when he said, listen to him, that triggered the language of the law when Moses prophesied to the people. And he said, there will be one who will come after me, who will be like me. And when he speaks... Listen to him. So now in this moment, the disciples see Jesus, they see Moses, they see Elijah, they hear the voice of God, then this cloud leaves, they're terrified, Jesus comes up to him, he says, it's okay, it's fine. What Peter decided to do that he thought was brilliant is, let's, let's make three tents. One for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus. This is why sometimes deconstruction is necessary in our faith because sometimes we attach things and we build tents and we say God is this and God is this and God is this and we really need to just be concerned with who God said he was. Like, we didn't need three tents. What they didn't understand was, oh, wait a minute. When Moses was on the mountain, he was in the presence of Jesus. When Elijah was on the mountain, he was in the presence of Jesus. And suddenly, just like they were on that mountain, we are in the presence of Jesus. But it's not Mount Sinai, it's Mount Zion, where we're called to approach him and receive all that God has for us. And so in that moment, the only thing that should have been important to them was him. And it's the same for us. When we set our affections and we build tents for things that rust and fall apart or one day will pass away, we miss the point of the gospel. And that is we have been called to this place. We've been seated with Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all about him. Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Please understand this. The joy that was set before him was not that he would be seated at the right hand of God. Jesus was already seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's God. The, the word became flesh. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. He was already there. He left it to come here for the joy that was set before him. What was the joy that was set before Jesus when he was there that caused him to come here? us we are the joy that was set before Jesus we're the joy for us he became man and died for us so the joy that is set before us can't be all the things that we want that he says he'll give to us the joy set before us has to be him it has to be him. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. It's all in him. And so those promises, those desires, when we step into his presence and we are with him, those promises that will be set before us, they find their yes in him. And there are some promises that are yes today, and there are some promises that are yes tomorrow, and there are some promises that will be yes three years from now. But I don't find my affection set on the promises because my affection is set on him because in him all the promises find their yes and he goes on he says and you have come to the blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel remember week one Cain got angry at his brother Abel God said I I want to sacrifice from the pasture. And Cain was giving him a sacrifice from the field. And Cain, in my words, became aggravated. And um, you know what, God? You want a sacrifice of blood? I'll give you one. I'll give you the blood of my brother. How about that? And he killed his brother. 
He said, what about that sacrifice? And then Genesis chapter 4 and verse 10, God said, Cain, what have you done? For the blood of your brother is crying out to me from the ground. And so you are now cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth up to receive the blood of your brother. What was the word of the blood of Abel? You are cursed. What is the word of the blood of Jesus? You are blessed. Abel's blood spoke one word. The blood of Jesus speaks a better word. Galatians 3.14, in Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That is, that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. There are promises that are better. The promise that is better is that we have Jesus. They had prosperity under the old covenant. They had health under the old covenant. They even had forgiveness, temporary, but they had forgiveness under the old covenant. But only, only in the new covenant have people received the spirit of God. Only in the new covenant does the blood of the sacrifice of Jesus call us blessed. Only the new covenant is better. And when we set our affections on the foundations of the new covenant, then we stand firm on what cannot be shaken. And when everything else is shaken, it doesn't remain, but it doesn't bother us. When we stand on the foundation of what cannot be shaken, our faith is in Him. We walk by faith. We live by faith. When I'm blessed because of Jesus, I win. When I'm persecuted because of Jesus, I win. So whether or not I am following Him and finding the, the all the things that I want, or whether I am following Him and and there's distraction around me. It doesn't matter because I'm following him and in him there is blessing. In him there is the promise. In him I have the spirit of God within me. By faith. We walk by faith. Not by sight.